Lord, we just lift this day up to you, this time as we dig into your word, Lord. There's so much in there. We're so grateful, Lord, for all the little hidden gems that you place throughout your word. Thank you, Lord. Help us to dig them out this morning. We'd be blessed by them, encouraged by them, and Lord, that we would grow through them. Lord, we lift up those who are sick, those who are home, some of them struggling even with this virus, Lord. We pray for them, Lord. We pray for your strength. We pray for healing. Lord, we pray that your will would be done. So, Lord, go before us here this morning. We ask it and we pray it in your precious name. Amen. Just a couple quick reminders. Um, Wednesday, Saul will be here. So we're back in, in the swing of things on Wednesday night. Uh, Friday, January 8th, we're going to have a men's movie night. The movies have changed. I just put those two movies in there to lure you out, but I'm going to change them. We're going to be a little bit more uh, disciple-oriented, if you will. Uh, not much disciple material in Men from Mars, but uh, I'm sure, I don't think you guys will be disappointed. Um, and then we're going to have a Sunday at the movies on January 24th. We haven't done that in a while, so I, I know you guys will be looking forward to that. And also, next week is Agape, so if you want to bring something, I know you guys just all got done cooking for the holidays, and you probably don't want to see another pot or pan, but whatever you, are, whatever you make will be blessed by it. So if you can make something, just sign up on the list out there. All right, so we are in Revelation 15. Now, in chapter 14, we're given a preview of sorts, come, kind of like a coming attractions of what's to come. We're given a brief overview of what will happen. And so now John takes us back and he begins to fill in the details of what's going to happen. And he says, I saw. Now that verb, I saw, is used 152 times in the New Testament. It's used 41 of those 152 times right here in the book of Revelation. Because there's a lot to see. There's a lot going on in heaven, and John has been given a front row seat to all of it. And what John sees is a sign that the return of Jesus is near. Now, Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward, I'm sorry, wrong verse. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. And as it gets a little closer to his return, Jesus says in Revelation 22, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. So just before the tribulation begins, and just before the tribulation ends, he gives a warning to the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming, I am coming quickly. You know, the book of Revelation isn't here to scare us. It's here to prepare us. Now, we won't be here for this, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be prepared for what's coming. And we should be prepared in the regards that we need to share the gospel message. If we believe that Jesus is coming back quickly, that should create an urgency in us to share the message of the gospel even more. Amen? No one should have an excuse. The return of Jesus should not come a surprise as a surprise. Jesus said, but know this. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So Jesus warns us. He's been warning us. Get ready. Be ready. Because I am coming back. But despite the warnings, 
there will be many who will be left unprepared because they've not read the book that contains the warning. And see, that's where the gospel message, that's where we come in because we have read it. We know what's coming. And it's our responsibility, it's on us to share that with those who don't. Now, once this scene begins to unfold on earth, the time for the return of Jesus is at hand. Jesus says, I come quickly. And for those who don't know him, for those who have rejected him, the time to be saved is running out. Now, for many, if we said to them, time is running out, the return of Jesus is near, they would say, you've been saying that for years, right? You've been saying that for years. For over 2,000 years you've been saying that, and he still hasn't returned. You know, that's exactly what the Bible said would happen in the last days. As early as the first century, the apostles believed that Jesus' return was imminent. They believed that they would see it in their lifetime. Peter, for one, said, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. 1 Peter 4, 7. But when Jesus didn't come back in Peter's time frame, he addressed that situation as well. He said, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continued just as they were from the beginning of creation. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3-4. through four. And so when Jesus had not, had, didn't come back, he addressed that as well. He said, do not let this one fact escape your notice. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9. Listen. I want Jesus to return just as badly as Peter did. You do too, don't you? But I'm grateful that he didn't come before 2001 because had he come before 2001, I'd be lost. And I would imagine all of you have a date that you could say if he came before that date, you would be lost also. And know this, we don't have to wait until the last person on earth accepts Jesus Christ before he comes for his church. Because after he comes for his church, there's going to be many who are saved Millions, I hope, in the tribulation. It's not going to be a very pleasant time to be saved, but many will be saved. We know that from Scripture. Listen, I know that parts of the book of Revelation are very heavy. All the death, all the destruction, none of us want to hear that, especially for those of us who have loved ones who don't know the Lord. I get it. I get it. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church. That doesn't change the fact that he's coming back to rule and reign. It doesn't change the fact that what the book of Revelation says is going to happen is going to happen. And if a day is like a thousand years, then Peter, as he so wisely pointed out, the return of Jesus would not happen in his lifetime. But I have to tell you, using prophetic math, and you know how I love prophetic math, Jesus has been gone almost three days now. Let that sink in for a minute. Almost 3,000 years have gone by. Almost 3,000 years. And we all know that wonderful things happened with Jesus on the third day. Let that sink in for a minute. So if we're looking at three days or 3,000 years into the future, then we are the future. We are that final generation. We are nearing 
the third day. But if God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is not willing that any should perish, that is their heart's desire. If, they, if their desire is that all would turn to Jesus, all would repent of their sin and turn to Jesus, then you would have to believe that they would provide a way, right? That there would be a formula, if you will. And we like formulas, don't we? We all love formulas. We like to know that if you do things this prescribed way, that this will be the outcome. These results will occur, right? Well, they do. There is a formula. And, and it's right here. Part of that formula is right here in our text this morning. So let's dig in. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So John sees seven angels with seven plagues that will be poured out upon the earth. In the book of Leviticus we read, Yet if you show hostility toward me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Leviticus 26.21 The people on this earth are going to suffer these judgments if they continue to be hostile toward God and the things of God. If they refuse to heed the warnings and refuse to turn to Jesus and remain in their st- the state of sin that they're in, they're going to face the wrath of God. They're going to experience His judgment for all eternity. As unpleasant as that is, as unpleasant as it sounds, the fact that we don't want to see it happen isn't going to make it not happen. It's going to happen exactly as the Lord says it's going to happen. These are the last of the judgments. And that word in the Greek means to bring to a close, to complete. There's not going to be any more angels after this with any more judgments. After this, Jesus is going to come in judgment, in final judgment upon all mankind at the great white throne judgment. And all, living and dead, will be judged there. Those who are left, those who refuse to turn to Jesus, even after all they've seen, even after all the judgments that they've experienced, are going to face the wrath of God. Now that word wrath has the meaning of reaching a boiling point. God, who is long-suffering and patient, has given all the inhabitants of the earth ample warning, ample time, ample opportunity to turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. And if they do not, they will now face, up close and personal, the wrath of God in the tribulation, and they will suffer the judgment of God in eternity. Where they're going to find themselves weeping and gnashing their teeth, where there's darkness, where the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched, it is not a very pretty picture, is it? And with these last seven plagues, the fury of God is complete. It is finished. It is fulfilled. Look at verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, according to the sea of glass, and standing, rather, on the sea of glass, having harps of God. So John sees the sea of glass. Now, He's probably, with his first century eyes, he's probably not looking at a sea of literal glass. What he sees is water so pure, so clear, that you can see your reflection in it. The sea of glass represents 
the law of God, which acted as a mirror to all those who tried to follow it, didn't it? Paul wrote, because of the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. So the law didn't make you right with God. The law simply acted as a mirror to show you how sinful you were. The word of God also acts as a mirror to show us how we fall short of the commandments of God. James wrote, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. And so that is at the very heart of what's wrong with this world today. They've forgotten God. Not only have they forgotten God, they've created their own gods. They've established their own way of governing themselves. And that doesn't include God. They've created their own gods. They want to be their own gods. Now, there isn't a nation, tribe, people, or tongue that cannot trace their lineage back to Adam and Eve. We've all, we're all able to track our lineage back to Adam and Eve because we're all created by the same God. But for many of those nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, they've forgotten that lineage. They've turned away from the one true God and turned to worshiping gods of their choice. Now John sees this sea mingled with fire. Fire represents what? Judgment. The fire is a symbol of judgment for us. And judgment will come upon all those who have turned away from God and rejected Jesus as Messiah. And the third thing John sees here is victory, overcomers. Not all turn away from God. Many, many, many called the tribulation saints will choose not to worship the beast. They will choose not to take his mark. And that choice is going to cost them greatly. Not worshiping the image of the beast is going to lead to them being put to death. Not taking the mark of the beast is going to leave them to not have anything to eat, no place to live, and no way to earn a living. But in the end, if they overcome and persevere through all of that, they will have victory in Jesus. Amen? And John sees the angels playing harps. Now Psalm 144 verse 9 speaks of a, of a ten-stringed harp. God, I will sing a new song to you. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. Well, Psalm 144 9. Now, these strings, many have said, represents the Ten Commandments. Jesus took the law and condensed it into ten, ten commandments. And then he took it and condensed it even further, right? He said, the law, these things hang on the law and the prophets, these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he took the law, condensed it down to ten, and then condensed it even further to two. And we still have problems following it, even at two, don't we? So the first step in this formula that they leave for us is to recognize we're sinners and that God has provided a litmus test for us to determine that, both the law and his word. Show us that we're sinners. So that when what we see, rather, in these verses is, is the law acting as a mirror for us. The reflection of the law shows us our sin, and it also shows us that our sin leads us to judgment. Now, for those who see their sin... And come to the saving knowledge that the only way to escape that judgment is to acknowledge our sin, repent of our sin, and be forgiven of our sin, and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is that realization that gives us victory over the enemy 
And those of the tribulation will give them victory over the enemy, over his mark, and over the beast. Amen? So how did it all come to this? How does the world that's been given the greatest gift of all, the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, get to this point? Now please don't forget that the gospel message since the time of the apostles has gone forth to every corner of the globe. It has reached every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. There is no excuse. All have heard the message of hope in one way or another. All have heard the gospel message. So how does this world end up in such a terrible state? How do these saints in the tribulation have to make such a terrible choice? How has the world, and more importantly for us, our nation, got to where it is today? How did that happen? You know, thanks to a good friend of mine, I watched a documentary the other day called Monumental, and I strongly recommend it. You can find it on Prime. Kirk Cameron uh, did this documentary. It's an amazing documentary. It's about what we've forgotten as a nation. And, and it's, it's not only about what we've forgotten, but it's kind of a recipe. It's a formula for how we can turn this around as a nation. And not just for our nation. If anyone, any nation, any tribe, any people, any tongue applied this to their own people, they could turn things around for themselves. You see, how the world and how our nation got to this point is more about forgetting our roots than it is about what we've done. It seems when we look around the world today that the leaders of the world, the ones who stand, the ones who are left, the remnant, who stand, still stand for morality, still stand for liberty, still stand for justice, are being pushed out. And we know from the Bible that this has to happen at some point. They're being pushed out to make room for a one world order, aren't they? But a nation like America has an even greater responsibility because we made an oath to God. Our nation, contrary to what's being taught in school today, are not a, they were not our founding fathers and our forefathers were not atheists. They were not... They were not um, non-believers. They were not agnostics. They were not deists. They were Christians. They were believers in Jesus Christ. From the pilgrims to those who signed the Declaration of Independence, our founding fathers and forefathers were Christians. They had faith in Almighty God. Their faith is what got them through. So these pilgrims, the founding fathers, and the forefathers left a monument to us they left a monument to us is what they believed in this monument just like the monuments the israelites would leave when they came to a place and god did a mighty work there he told them to build a stone monument as a remembrance so that they knew what god had done in this place this monument is called the National Monument of the Forefathers. It's located in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Did any of you know that this even existed? I didn't until I saw this movie. It's a formula. It describes a way to turn not only America, but anyone who seeks the same virtues as our forefathers sought, they could turn their nation around as well. Now, the first thing you notice when you look at this statue is the top of it. The top of this monument is a statue called Faith. Faith is holding a Bible, partly open, in one hand, and with the other hand, she is pointing up to God. On her head is a star that indicates wisdom. It represents wisdom. 
And so it tells us that the word of God gives us wisdom to live in this world as followers of Jesus Christ. And this tells us that faith in God and in his word are at the forefront of any nation, any people, any tribe, any tongue's relationship with our creator. It was faith. It was the faith of the pilgrims that led them to this land. It was the faith that helped them overcome that first winter and all the hardships that they endured. Faith in God and obedience to his word forms the foundation of everything that comes next. The monument itself is tied to faith because without faith, it all falls apart. Around that monument are other statues, all representing the virtues that this nation was built upon. The first one you come to is morality. Morality has no eyes, meaning that she's looking inward, reminding us that it begins with the transformation of our hearts, and that internal transformation leads to an external transformation. And she also is holding the Ten Commandments in her left hand and the scroll of Revelation in her right, signifying that in order to have morality, there has to be a standard, and there must be judgment for those who refuse to uphold to that standard. Now, under the statue of morality sit two smaller statues. One is the prophet and the other the evangelist. The evangelist is sharing the gospel. That's the hope of the world. Showing us that once you receive the message of the gospel, you're going to want to do what's morally right. Amen? The next statue we come to is the law. In his hand is the law. And and in his other hands is extended out in mercy. So under the law stands justice and mercy. Justice is holding the scales of justice, telling us that all crimes are to be dealt with fairly and justly according to the law. No man is above the law and no one is to be treated differently under the law. Mercy shows us that along with the law comes the grace and mercy of God. The next statue you come to is education. Education is holding the book of wisdom or the word of God. And on her head is the crown of victory. We have victory in Jesus Christ. So she is sitting in victory, and she has trained her children up in the ways of the Lord. So all the future generations will know what the Lord has done. Amen? Under education stands youth and wisdom. Under the statue of youth, the woman is holding a book, and the child is writing on a scroll telling us that our children are to be trained up in the word of God from their youth, and that is the responsibility of the parents. It is our responsibility as Christian parents to teach our children faith and morality and instill in them the wisdom of God through his word. Now the other side of this statue is wisdom. And wisdom's hand is pointing to the Bible and the Ten Commandments. He represents the elders of the family, the grandparents. On the other side of this figure is a globe. And that tells us that the grandparents have the responsibility to teach the younger children how to how this world works from a biblical perspective. Amen? So nobody gets a break here. Everybody is responsible. And then the last part of this statue is liberty. As a result of living according to the word of God, we have liberty. Now, liberty is seated in liberty, and he holds broken chains in his hand, and there's a claw on his left shoulder that attaches to a lion's skin. And this represents that he's defeated the tyranny of the king of England, 
But you have to remember, the pilgrims did this not by the sword, but by living out the word of God. It also represents that our chains, the bonds of sin, have been broken, and because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been set free. It also represents the sword in his hand, that double-edged sword, as a reminder that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to deter, discern, rather, the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Romans, uh, Romans, Hebrews 4.12. That sword was also used to protect his family, to defend the laws of the land, and to defend their liberty. Now, under liberty, the smaller statues stand ty tyranny overthrown and peace. And they remind us that no matter what tyranny we are placed under, we have the peace of God in our lives. That no matter what, just as our forefathers did, we should always try to break free of that tyranny so that we are free to worship our God in our way according to our faith. Even if that means one day that we are driven underground. Amen? So why do I bring all this up? Why the history lesson for those of you who hate history? Because as a nation, we've forgotten this. We didn't even know this existed. There's a reason this has been hidden from us for so many years. We, the people, have turned from God. We've rejected faith. And as a result, it has made us an immoral nation where sin is celebrated. And those who break the law are not punished. There's no equality and justice. And the only wisdom people seek today is the wisdom of the world. That's where we've gotten to. I believe what our forefathers wanted us to pass down from generation to generation has been forgotten. God has been forgotten. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know that book you guys love to read in the beginning of your Bible reading each year? In the Mishnah, it means the repetition of the Torah. It was written so that the generation that was entering the promised land would, re would remember all the instructions of God. It was there for them to remember we as a nation were founded on the very principles and instructions that guides us through this Bible, that guided the Israelites. The values, the virtues, the principles, the instructions that I believe are there for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people has been forgotten. And the failure to follow these things and turning away from God is going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to the destruction of these nations, the people, the tribes, and the tongues. So how do we apply this to our lives? Because what we're seeing in Revelation happens when a world created by God, for the glory of God, forgets God. So how can we, just you and I as individuals, what can we do? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, first, we can apply it by living the word of God. Not only in our lives, but in our families. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Allow his word to affect the change in your heart that will manifest itself in an outward change in your life. And just as Jesus praised the church in Philadelphia, we need to not deny the name of Jesus, and we need to stand firm on his word no matter what. Amen? Look at verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. 
Now, some have compared the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32 to this. They're saying that this is that song. Now, even though some of the words are similar, I don't believe they're the same. I don't think we have to look any further than the verses that you have right here in verse 3 and 4 to discover the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb, the lyrics to them. We have the lyrics to them right here in front of us. It's a song of victory in Christ because it reminds us of who God is. And that's the next part of the formula. Because we've forgotten who God is, we need to be reminded of who God is. To know God is to love Him, isn't it? To love Him leads us to want to obey His commandments. It draws us even closer to Him, leading us to want to obey His commandments. And the first part of that is that God is great and marvelous. His works are great and marvelous. The psalmist tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Psalm 19.1 Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1, verse 20. So God's works are all around us to see. So that we will never forget that there's a God. I mean, what's the first thing you think of when you look at a starlit night? Or a full moon? Or a beautiful landscape? I hope it's that, Lord, your creation is amazing. It helps us to remember who God is. And nowhere are his mighty works more evident than in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the next thing John says is that God is just and true. Just and true are his ways. You know, in a world that celebrates sin and believes that truth is relative, our God represents justice and, and that is fair and equitable for all. And since he is truth, in God we find absolute truth, which is the very foundation of our faith, isn't it? And then John says, you're God Almighty. He is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. There's none like him. And that means that through the challenges that we faced in 2020 and the challenges we will face, in 2021, God is more than capable of seeing us through them. Amen? Because He's the same God that led, led Israel through the desert. He's the same God that led the, the pilgrims through that first winter. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same God that will help us through our hardships. And then John points out that He's the King of the saints. You know, our forefathers didn't serve the King of England. They served the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They weren't affiliated with any political party. In fact, they called themselves separatists. They wanted to be separated out from government, from the world, from everything. They were monarchists, just as you and I are monarchists. We don't serve a political party. We serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? And it is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King, that we're going to have victory. Look at verse 4. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. So the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, continues on in verse 4. All will fear you. And that's the problem today, isn't it? People have lost their fear of God. They think he's just some great, loving, grandfatherly figure in the sky. Mother Nature, the big man upstairs. 
But those who are left on this earth, at this point, don't fear God. They fear what they've lost. They've put their faith and hope and trust in material things, and they're fearful of losing that. But the Bible teaches us that one day, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth, of those under the earth, and that every tongue would confess Jesus Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10-11. through 11. Now fear is a double-edged sword. If you fear God and you turn to Jesus, you will not fear His wrath. But if you have no fear for His wrath and you reject Jesus, you will experience both unimaginable fear and the wrath of God. And in 6, John says, you are holy. God alone is holy. He's the very definition of holy. And here's the difference. We were made holy. God is holy. You see the difference? God tells us what we must do to be holy. And the only way that can happen is by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. Our works don't make us holy. Our faith in Jesus is the only thing that can make us holy. And then John points out that all nations will serve you. You know, the Bible tells us that in the millennial kingdom, all the nations of the earth will serve Jesus. And there is at least one feast that we will be required to, to participate in. All of us, every nation. Zechariah writes about it. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations will come against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. So we're going to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot in heaven. We're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, as we just learned last week, in heaven. And it's all going to be under the rule of Jesus. Amen? Look at verses 5 and 6. It's funny, all the nations that rage against God now are going to wind up serving him in the end. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle and the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Something new catches John's eye. He sees the temple open, and coming out of the temple are the seven angels with the seven plagues. And they're coming directly from the presence of God. You ever wondered what the what being in the presence of God is like? These angels are in his presence all the time. One day, one day what we can only imagine now, we're going to be able to see clearly. It's going to become a reality for us and I can't wait for that, can you? But until then, because of the death of Jesus on the cross, because when he died the veil was ripped in two and the holy of holies was was made available to us, that means we can come into the presence of God anytime we need to. That's what the author of Hebrews wrote to us, right? He said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to what? To help in time of need. Anybody need the grace and mercy of God every minute of every day? We have access to him. We can spend as much time as we want with him. Notice the angels have the plagues with them. Plagues represent judgment, as fire does. Yet they're clothed in pure, bright linen with gold bands around their chest. They represent the pure, righteous judgment of God. God judges, but He also extends His mercy. He gave His only begotten Son to pay the debt for our sin. 
That's something we didn't deserve. He provided a way for us to avoid his judgment and wrath. And that way is by placing our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. Too many people want to pass by that step and go straight. It's like passing go and going straight to heaven. We're not going there until we give our until we submit to Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through me. Look at verses seven and eight. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So these seven bowls of judgment are poured out quickly and completely. And in this, these verses, we're told about the God that we serve. He lives forever and ever. God's eternal. He always was, always is, and always will be. And we're offered eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that when we leave this earth, we get to spend eternity with Him. John speaks of the glory of God. You know, when a Christian dies, a Christian goes right to the presence of God, surrounded by God's glory. But just like we can enter into His presence anytime we need His mercy and grace, we can experience His glory on this earth, can't we? In a beautiful sunset, a starlit night, full moon, even in the face of a newborn baby, we see God's glory and majesty all around us. And that's why mankind has no excuse, has no excuse at ever, at all. Creation declares the glory of God. You can't look at creation and say there is no God. The glory of God filled the temple, and no one was able to enter into that throne room as long as that glory, as long as the smoke of his glory filled that temple. And it's got to tell us something about God. These are some of the most, these are the most powerful beings in God's creation, and even they cannot enter into God's full glory. So what how do humans think that they can stand before God one day and tell them just how good they've been? How did we think we could stand before Jesus and say, listen, God, I've been a good guy. I'm righteous in my own eyes. I should be able to enter into heaven. It has to tell us that there's no way we can do this on our own. God said to his prophet Zechariah, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In Matthew 19, the disciples asked Jesus, who then could be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's impossible to save ourselves. Salvation is from God and through God only. You know, I read you the meaning of this monument this morning. It's a memory of what God had done in the formation of this nation through our forefathers. And it contains a formula. It contains a formula of how to get back to our Christian roots if we ever lose track of where we're at as a nation. And boy, have we gone off the rails. It contains a formula of how to get back on track. That formula is rooted and grounded in Jesus and the Word of God. And throughout Scripture, even in our text this morning, we can see that God has provided a formula. It tells us how to get back to what we've lost. If we ever lose our way, if we ever forget who our, who our God is, we have a formula to help us get back. 
but it's also a formula, if you will, that tells us how to avoid his wrath and his judgment. It's a formula for victory in Jesus Christ. That formula tells us that the reflection of the law of God helps us to realize that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It reminds us that there's a cost for our sin and that there's a debt to be paid. And if that debt is left unpaid, we will face the wrath of God for that unpaid debt. It tells us to turn to Jesus so that we are covered by his blood and washed clean of our sins. And then and only then will we be able to stand as holy in the sight of God and avoid the wrath of God. The formula tells us to plant our faith firmly in our Lord Jesus Christ to, so that we can experience an inward change that's manifested in an outward change in our lives. It tells us to treat others with the same justice and mercy that we've been shown. It tells us to teach our children in the ways of the Lord so that when they are older, they will not depart from it. It tells us to then spread this message of hope, spread the gospel message, and in so doing, our faith actually becomes stronger. It tells us to choose God over man and to freely worship him no matter what the cost. And it tells us to learn all that we can about God, to open our hearts, to let him in. And then when we learn of his love for us, it draws us closer to him. And then we want, we don't ever get a list of do's and don'ts. We, when you're changed inwardly, you want to obey the commandments of the Lord. You want to do what's right in his eyes. And when that formula is done in the prescribed manner, the result is victory in Christ. Amen? We'll get to sing the song of Moses. We will get to sing the song of the Lamb, the song of victory. God's given us a formula, if you will, of how to avoid his wrath and judgment to come. And at the very core of that formula is Christ Jesus. Because without him, without faith in him, everything else falls apart. Everything is tied to that. And if we learn anything from the book of Revelation, is that it's God's desire that none, none would perish. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He tells us that in his word. And so to illustrate that God has laid out a plan and given us a formula, if you will, to avoid his wrath and escape his judgment, he's made it as simple as ABC. A, and we go through this every week, and we do this because anyone listening, anyone who's not heard the gospel message, I don't want to leave here and not have shared the gospel message. It is the most important thing that we've been entrusted to do. So A, admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've fallen short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 3.10 that there are none righteous, no, not one. In 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you may be a good person. You may be a great person, but based on the verses I just read to you, none of us are good. And that tells us that we need a Savior. Paul wrote, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The only way, the only way to be saved from the judgment to come is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So the next step is B. Believe. Believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins. Believe that he rose from the grave and that he's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Believe. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes of the righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
How many here who have given their heart and their lives to Jesus Christ have ever regretted a day of doing that? Not one. So once you admit you're a sinner, and you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sin, you have to repent of that sin and turn to Jesus. And then that brings us to C. Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon Jesus. Confess to Him that you cannot do this on your own. That you want to submit your life to Him and surrender your will to Him. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Listen, please don't ever think that you've done something or many things that God cannot forgive you for. There's only one thing that we cannot be forgiven for, and that's to die in a state of sin. That's to die rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the one thing you cannot be forgiven for. Anything else can and will be forgiven if you just bring it to the Lord. Bring it to Him and be reconciled. Paul says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture is in the Bible. So if you surrender your life to Jesus Christ today, if you submit your will to Him, then you'll be reconciled to God, no longer His enemy, but you'll now be an heir to the kingdom of heaven because you're going to be sanctified, meaning that you're going to be made just like Jesus daily, justified, just as if you've never done it, forgiven of your sins. Through Jesus, you're going to be reconciled to God, sanctified, justified, washed clean of your sin, past, present, and future. You get a clean slate. You know, we all like to wipe the slate clean in the new year and start over. This wipes the slate of your life clean, and you get a fresh start. And the cool thing about this is in God's eyes, that slate stays washed clean. And if that's what you want with all your heart, if that's your heart's desire, that if you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and submit your will to Him, that I implore you today to just get on your knees, call upon the name of the Lord, and as the Bible tells us, you will be saved. Please stand. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for who You are. We thank You for Your love for us, Lord, that while we were still sinners, You died for us. What an amazing thought. What an amazing illustration of your love for us, Lord. Go before us now. Go before all of those, Lord, who are, can't be here with us, Lord. Let them know that we love them, that we care for them. And, Lord, that one day, whether here or in the air, we will all be together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.